0: Welcome to Peer Spectrum, the show where we uncover the creative solutions, innovative tools, and advanced practices of our peers, both inside and outside of medicine. Recharge and refocus with incredible stories, unique perspectives, and unforgettable conversations. Get ready to see what's working. Get ready to see what's ahead. Get ready to see things differently. Get ready for Peer Spectrum. Now, your hosts, Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Colin Miller here with Keith Mankin. Imagine yourself as a patient who can freely schedule visits anytime they wish. During those visits, they can expect to spend an average of 45 minutes face-to-face with their doctor. They can even call their doctor anytime, even on nights and weekends. Now imagine yourself as that doctor. Today, the average family physician sees 35 to 40 patients every day, averaging only 7 minutes with each one. It's no surprise that many GPs today report feeling overworked, underpaid, and even burned out, but not you. You enjoy an average of 45 minutes with each of your patients. You see at most five or six patients per day. Your patients can call you anytime, but surprisingly they rarely do. You love your job, you love your lifestyle, you know your patients and they know you. Your practice model enables huge healthcare cost savings, but your income still matches or exceeds that of your traditional family practice colleagues. So what's the catch? Is this a concierge practice limited to wealthy patients? Utopian practice model existing only in theory? No, it's real. It's simple. And it's called, well, simply enough, direct primary care, or DPC. Also, for those of you who aren't family physicians, stay tuned because this is a dynamic model, not limited to just family medicine. Dr. Stacy Benson is an expert who knows her stuff about DPC practice. She's also a family physician who runs her own. Her practice model and financials are completely transparent. So we're going to get a chance to take a look under the hood. Is a DPC model good for you? Is it too good to be true? This is one of those episodes that may challenge your traditional thinking, your practice, and even your future. With that said, let's get started. Stacy, let's just start out. Give us an idea of your practice. What's unique about it and why do patients seek you out as opposed to just a normal family family care practice?
1: So um, I'd like to rephrase that and say I should be the normal primary care practice. So um, I'm very unique. I have a direct primary care practice. Um, It's been around for over a decade now, but it's really been growing in the past five years. Uh, Basically, it's cutting all the red tape and getting rid of the bureaucracy. So it's direct care between the physician and the patient. If you were to walk into my office today, you would see there is nobody here. There's no front desk. There's no nurses running around. I'm not trying to cattle people through the rooms, one after another. It's really all about that relationship with your patient.
0: So this is a model that's gaining ground across the country, right? This is not something you started up locally.
1: I wish I could say I was the genius behind it, but I'm not, no.
0: So tell us a little bit about why, I know there's there's a, a ceiling for the number of patients you accept. Um, mm-hmm. Describe that, and how does that allow you to spend more time with patients and then also have more access available to patients?
1: Oh, definitely. So your traditional family medicine clinic sees 3,000 to 5,000 patients in their Rolodex every year, and they need that big of a number in order to keep patients coming in the door so they can see that 25 to 30 a day. Of course, some see way more than that and some see a little less. But they need a larger volume of patients because they might see them once or twice a year. Versus in my model, um, I provide primary care for a flat fee. So for a membership fee, they have unlimited access to me, their visits, their phone calls, their emailing, anything they need. It's all included in that. So they're going to come in more than once a year. But because of that, I can't take care of 3,000 patients. They'll just be no way for me to see everybody once a month, even at 3,000 patients. So instead, um, I have set my particular cap at 600 patients. Um, Other clinics like mine do 400, some do 800, some do 1,200. It all just depends on the type of patients that you have, um, how often they're going to be needing to have accessibility to you, and then the type of clinic you're trying to run. That's the best part about direct primary care, is every clinic's a little different, and it's just finding what suits you as the provider and your patients and your population. So my visits typically are about 45 minutes each.
2: Wow. That's great. And you had shared some statistics about what the uh, average visits in the typical family practice uh, uh, practice setting are. What were those numbers again?
1: Yep. It's very daunting, but the average space time with a physician in a primary care setting is seven minutes across the oh, country. Whew. And I, mine's 45 minutes with a physician.
2: Okay. Have the uh, patients responded well to that? Do they um, Have you got to a point where they sort of look and say, what, you're still here? Why? I mean, I can't believe that I'm still talking to a doctor.
1: Oh, they love it. I haven't anybody complained yet. I'm sure somebody at some point is going to say, hey, can we just get in and out real fast like we used to? <laughs> Uh, but so far, everybody has loved it. Um, I've had people crying at the end of the visit that they can't believe a doctor was willing to sit down, actually talk to them, and spend time to listen to their problems, um, to going at the end and standing up and saying, well, what do I do now? Do we leave? Do we pay? How do, how does this work? And it's like, nope, we're done for the day. See you later. Nice. Great. Yep.
2: Did you know about the DPC model coming out of medical school? Had you heard anything about it in medical school?
1: I had not heard about direct primary care specifically in medical school um, back, I'm not that old, but back in the mid 2000s, there really weren't very many direct primary care practices. It was typically just concierge practices. Um, the first one that became large and successful uh, was founded in 2007. So that is right when I was in medical school. And that was Q Lions out of Seattle, Washington. And they're still around. They have 32 providers. They take care of 40,000 lives, um, multiple locations. I think they have seven locations. If wow. I'm, but you but check me on that one. Um, and so back in medical school, I knew I wanted to do a cash pay practice of some sort. And so I did a lot of research on concierge, but it just didn't fit with what I wanted from my practice.
0: So what's so much different th- uh, from a concierge standpoint and a DPC? What are the, some of the main differentiators?
1: So there's a general gray area. Um, if you had asked that question seven years ago, someone would have said they're the exact same thing. But we're really trying to give definitions to the types of practices now. So in general, your concierge practice is going to have a higher annual rate. Um, and in general, a concierge practice is going to also be billing your insurance. So you would still be paying, the patient pays their co-pays, their deductibles, Um they're going to have staff in the office that's going to be in charge of reimbursement versus in direct primary care. There's three general components to qualify as a direct primary care clinic underneath the Affordable Care Act. And this is the, the general rule we try to put in any state legislation too. The clinic needs to charge a periodic fee whether it's monthly, biannual, annual fee, but a periodic fee. They do not bill any third parties on a fee-for-service basis, meaning if you came in to see me for your strep throat, I'm not going to turn around and then bill your insurance for the strep throat. And any per-visit charge, some people do all-inclusive, and others also charge a per-visit fee on top of that membership fee. But any per-visit charge needs to be less than the monthly equivalent of the periodic fee. So there are some practices out there that are more hybrid. So they have some of their patients do this direct primary care model and some are in the traditional fee-for-service model. Um, Just because you have a hybrid practice does not mean you couldn't qualify as direct primary care. It's just recognizing that direct primary care typically would not take it.
0: So is this a more like, I guess, for lack of a better term, a franchise model, or is this just an established model that you have used and tailored towards your practice in Dallas?
1: So there are people that franchise out the model and help you get it started, just like there's franchises out there for concierge clinics that have been around for the past decade. Um, but direct primary care is it refers to a payment model. And so it's really important to define it when we're looking at um, uh, legislation on the state and federal level in order to help facilitate direct primary care in clinics. For example, some states, they view this type of a membership model as an insurance. So... We In Texas, we're protected under the insurance commissioner. We are not viewed as insurance. And so there's a few states are still um, working on those laws. And then, of course, there's federal home laws going through, too. They would identify this clinic. We are not an insurance entity. We the clinic charging a membership fee. So that's why the definitions are really important.
2: How did you find out information about the uh, direct primary care? How did you know how to set things up?
1: so i'm still learning how to set things up um but it's really been reaching out and learning from other clinics that have already been open and what's been successful for them and why some clinics have failed um it's a lot easier to find successful clinics out there than it is to find clinics that did fail um but when i first started down this road like i mentioned i've always wanted to do a cash-based clinic like it even goes back to high school i wanted to do a cash-based clinic And um, when I was in residency, I was getting ready to graduate with the goal of opening up a clinic that a local hospital was actually going to fund. And then I would buy it from them after a few years. Um, And we were going to do a cash fee for service um, clinic. And it ended up they dropped out of the deal. And so I was stuck with what do I do now? So um, I ended up doing urgent care and just researching how I could get the clinic funded on my own, what I needed to do in order to just cut out the middleman and it just be me and the patient. And I stumbled across direct primary care. I actually stumbled across a podcast by a direct primary care physician. Um, and I thought it fit perfectly with my needs where I could charge the membership basis, have a low membership, but that low membership allows for people to come back and money doesn't become a barrier. Um, you know, it's that psychology behind it. of I don't want to pay for each visit I go to. Um, and so having that low fee spread across the year allows for them to come in different um, spurts, like for a bronchitis, and they need to come in two or three times for their bronchitis, but it covered their entire payment for the year.
2: Yeah, it strikes me that um, there's an a opposite and good effect as well, because if you pay a, a, a fee, you're less likely to not go to the doctor in a given year. And yep. that, it's like the gym uh, membership type thing. <laughs> so uh, in theory, at least people should be healthier in this system because yep. they've already paid for the care.
1: Yep. And it allows me to actually focus on prevention, too. As many probably know, our current system pays for reaction. So we pay when you I- get sick. That's what you get reimbursed for. You don't get reimbursed for working to prevent their illness. So I actually had the luxury of being able to focus on diet and exercise and really looking at people's risk factors and then um, specializing um, their treatment plan based on their uh, risk factors, genetic, and then their social risk factors.
2: Sure. Did you find that the other uh, that other DPC providers were very forthcoming in their advice and their help?
1: It has been the most open and most um, helpful group of people I've ever met in my entire life. So. Uh, we've started a little community that's continuing to grow every single day of people interested in direct primary care, or that already have direct primary care practices that are willing to have people come shadow in their clinics. We'll post videos of their clinics, um, give tips for how they get their EMRs to work better for them. Um, have patient contracts, employment contracts, um, how they've worked with small businesses in order to, um, work as the doctor for a small business. Um, it's just been the most welcoming group of people.
0: So Stacey, we want to dig really deep on a couple things here, but I'm thinking about some of our viewers right now listening to this and thinking, what's in it for me? What, what would, Why would I <laughs> want to consider this? And one thing I understand is this helps a lot with, pay, or with physician satisfaction. So there's a lot of talk these days about burnout, about uh, dealing with EHRs and insurance companies and all the other things that are going on in the world today. Just take us through a typical day right now and... Tell us about how happy you are. We're not happy, but uh, (laughs) give us an idea of what you do from the time you get in to the time you get your last call at night.
1: So, and to preface this, I just opened six weeks ago. So I'm not a 600 deep clinic that we're bustling and moving people through the day. So you can check back with me hopefully in a year and it will be a little bit of a different answer. Um, But I have a two-year-old. And so one of the things that I personally wanted was to be able to be a parent to my two-year-old. So I didn't like where I have to go into the clinic in the previous job at seven in the morning to get prepped for the day, go through all your charts, work on all your labs from the day before, and then you're staying till seven, eight o'clock at night, or coming home and charting after your family goes to bed. So just that, that preface out there that lifestyle was very important to me. So my clinic actually opens at nine 30 in the morning. Um, that allows me to take my daughter to daycare myself versus relying on a nanny coming in. Um, and then I, right now I typically have one to three patients scheduled a day. Um, today I have, we're talking and then I have a patient at noon and then a patient at two o'clock and a patient at four thirty. So Nice and spread out throughout the day. Each of them are going to be wellness visits. So it's a longer appointment so we can actually talk and go through all of their issues. And then um, I'll go home. Um, and that's about it. Sometimes you get calls at night. It is flu season or it's winter for those who don't know what time we're recording this. So I am getting a few people that have gotten the flu or a croup and some of my kiddos um, that I'm having to take care of late at night. But just as any parent, I'd want to be able to call my doctor for those simple things at night. So um, that's about it. And I it's just me. I don't have a receptionist or anything. So in between those patients, I am just doing small things like paying the cable bill or um, paying the lease or um, looking at um, how I can negotiate lower lab prices um, for my patients. So it's a, a pretty nice relaxing day. I'm not running from room to room and trying to chart as fast as I possibly can and make sure I check enough boxes for um, my PQRS. So it's very nice. Oh, and to give an example from, like, last night, a mom called me at 7 o'clock, and one of her little kids um, was sick. She, I uh, heard the cough via the phone.
2: Huh. It was a
1: very obvious croup that came through the cough. So I came to the clinic, grabbed some dexamethasone, went over to their house, gave the little kid dexamethasone, checked him out, and headed back home. So that mom didn't have to leave or bundle her kid up to go outside, and it took about 20 minutes of my day, and it was beautiful. Wow.
2: That is great. It's like the uh, old TV model, isn't it? Where where the doctor makes the house calls. So Um, has that been an issue or do you anticipate that will be an issue? I mean, I'm always a little concerned if you say uh, you can call me at any time that patients will call you at any time. Mm -hmm. Is that something you're concerned about or? I'm
1: not concerned about it. People have been very respectful of my time. Um, So far, the only calls that I've gotten at night and even then they apologize are things like this mom with the the cough and she wasn't sure what to do, um, which I would have called our own pediatrician if, I, if my kid was coughing like that um, it late at night. So it was completely understandable. Um, I do preface it with my patients that if you're going to call me at night or in the middle of the night, um, I would please make sure it's an urgent matter that can't wait until the morning, just like I won't call you to go over your billing at two o'clock in the morning. I wouldn't want you to call me about something that's been going on for a few weeks at two o'clock in the morning. So and everyone's been very respectful of that.
2: Although that's a good strategy for getting back to the patients who do. I never thought of that. That's a good one. <laughs> um, how about the, uh, the patients, the patients who are coming in do they Are they aware of the uh, direct primary care model? Is it something they've looked for? Uh, are they pleasantly surprised when they talk to you?
1: Um, Honestly, out of I have 27 patients right now, um, only one family was searching for a direct primary care model. Um, So everybody else has just heard from word of mouth um, from somebody else or has um, heard me talking about it um, at a local function and thought that it fit their needs. So and then they're. They're amazed because it's beyond anything you could possibly imagine. My husband is non medical, and it took him it took him a good two years to really understand what this model was and how it was different from the traditional model. And he lives with me every day talking about it, so I understand that it's going to take patients a little while to truly grasp what it is.
0: So we're talking about patients. Are is there a certain self selection for the type of patient you're seeing? I mean, I'm picturing a you know a kid in their twenties who never goes to the doctor, doesn't feel the need to, maybe doesn't even have insurance even though they're supposed to right now. Um, is that type of person going to pay a membership or is it more people who happen to need more healthcare or they just maybe they're just seeking a better relationship with their physician? What, what types of patients are you seeing?
1: Um, all of the above. So I so far don't have one particular type of patient in my clinic, and this seems true talking to other doctors that it are full at their six eight hundred patients, um, that it's just a different model that fits for different reasons. So I have patients that don't have health insurance, so they didn't have access to any care. So I'm at least access to care for them. Um, I have patients that have amazing health insurance, but time is an issue. So they wanted to make sure they could get same day appointments. Um, they travel a lot. They didn't have to go find urgent cares when they were traveling. I would rather be able to have that telemedicine relationship with their doctor while they traveled. Um, I have, and or of course, when you go to your traditional doctor, it takes a few hours between start to finish at the appointment. So they didn't have time for that in their workday. Um, I have patients that have high deductible plans. Okay, insurance, but um, they don't go to the doctor very often, but they recognized how much money they were spending when they did go to the doctor. And then I have patients, of course, that do have chronic issues and just needed more time with their physician, so time was a luxury that they wanted here.
0: I mean, I've got to imagine this is could be appealing to insurance companies. Is there any work on the national front to... Get, uh, I guess, a little more support from them. Maybe make it a little easier for them to pay even a membership fee.
1: Mm-hmm. So you have a great imagination. Um, the um, There are actually trials going on right now with even Medicare and Medicaid, where Medicare and Medicaid are reimbursing the physicians for their published rate. It's all about transparency. So anyone can go on my website and see exactly what I'm charging. Um, and so those have been only been going on for about one to almost two years now so hopefully we'll see positive results and they'll actually see a decrease in overall cost in healthcare. care um, and so they'll be able to roll those out it be easier for medicaid and medicare patients to see a clinic like ours um, there are government groups that have been um, using direct primary care uh, new jersey is a state just um, allowed all their employees uh, work for the state to sign up for a direct primary care clinic Um, so that just happened in 2016 so hopefully we'll see studies come out about that Um, Union County is a small little county in North Carolina that back in 2015 decided that they were going to offer um, direct primary care as an option to their 2,000 covered lives 40% of those 2,000 covered lives decided to join direct primary care in addition to the high deductible plan Versus the other 60 percent, just went into their traditional fee-for-service, high deductible plan. So, of the so that's 800 patients there. These 800 patients in one year, they saw 38 percent less occurrence in medical expenses, expenses saving. Union County, $1.4 million in medical expenses. On top of it, those 800 patients had 37% less in prescription expenses, saving the county about $270,000. And then the participants also reported 46% less out-of-pocket um, fees for prescriptions and office visits, saving an additional $330,000. On Stacey,
0: of- that is huge.
1: Isn't that amazing? That's just with 800 patients in one little county, right, in one year, um, on top of it, so you go, okay, so they had gr- better access to care. They were able to call their physician go in whenever they needed to go in right, um, that potentially would improve their quality of care too because the doctor can actually spend more time with them. But now we have amazing cost savings. So what's the downside? Well, maybe they just didn't like the interaction. People were getting them in and out as fast as possible. Um, 73% of those 800 covered lives report that they had significant improvement in their overall health since choosing to do direct primary care instead of the traditional fee for service. So studies like this have been replicated. Um, Q Lions, if you remember, I was the the first big, um, direct primary care practice that started back in 2007. Um, they pulled out savings data from 2013 where they took a thousand of their patients, a random selection of a thousand out of their 40, and then compared it to a thousand non-Q Alliance patients in the traditional setting. They compared the number of ER visits for those thousand lives inpatient days, specialist visits, Advanced radiology and primary care visits, and then overall savings. So, of course, the patients that um, were in the Q line direct primary care system went to the ER less. They were hospitalized at a less at a one to two ratio. So, 50% less hospitalized days by wow. being in direct primary care practice. They saw the specialist less. They had less less advanced imaging. And then they had way more primary care visits. So it's about a two to one for primary care visits, which makes sense, right? You're able to come in as often as you want. So for those thousand patients, they saved $679,000 compared to the non-Q patients. So if you extrapolate that out for their 40,000 patients, they're saving the healthcare system just in their clinic, $27.1 million a year compared to the traditional system. So, yes, you're exactly right. Mm. Insurances, whether it be federal businesses that are um, partially self-funded or traditional insurances, are seeing this and they recognize the cost savings and better
2: care. Where are these papers being reported, or sorry, these studies being reported? Are there papers in the literature? Are they being, is this being discussed at national meetings? Um, are they in Journal uh, American Medical Association?
1: So you're going to, I'd have to go find exactly where they're published. I know John Locke is an organization that's been publishing these numbers. Um, Mm -hmm. These particular numbers that I'm quoting as we talk are actually coming from Forbes magazine. Um, They've been running lots of exposés on direct to primary care. And so they're citing the study. Um, So honestly, I'd have to get back to you on where the study originally
2: coming from. Um,
0: And that's okay. We'll do that. And we'll get all these added to the show notes for everybody.
2: I I didn't mean um, the specific citations. I guess what I meant was, is this actually getting a forum? Are people hearing this data uh, at the national level? Or is this really just sort of, at this point, just going back and forth between the DPC doctors?
1: So it's, it's slowly coming into the national level, and you are going to see this kind of a number talked about when you're looking at more of the um, the AAPP, so the American Association of Private Physicians, right, docs that do more of that cash pay model to begin with, um, versus if you look at, for example, the ACOFP, the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians, or the AAFP, the American Academy of Family Physicians, direct primary care is on their radar. It's on both of their websites, but it's not one of the forefront of things talked about at, it, at the conferences Mm it's slowly getting there. Um, Over the past few years, I'm active in both, and I'm slowly seeing it talked about more. Um, Both now have special interest groups for their members. Um, Both every once in a while will have meetings where um, they have a lecture regarding direct primary care. But it's it's a big shift, right? It's a paradigm shift in how we look at medicine and care. So um, it's just going to take a while. I'm an early adopter, and I recognize that completely that I'm going to be preaching at the top of the hill for many years until people understand it. Um, but the news media is who pick up on it. And that's why you see Forbes magazine runs a lot of these. Um, Sean Hannity loves the idea of direct primary care. He talks about it a lot whenever he does interviews with people regarding health care. Um, even the Wall Street Journal back in November um, put their own opinion piece out on what the four new legs of a healthcare system should look like. And the fourth one was direct primary care. Mm.
0: Yeah cuz I'm thinking about this Union County North Carolina and it almost answers a couple questions for me. One is the self-selection question. If you're taking all the employees in the county, they're all going to be in. Those those are people from all ages, you know, both sexes, all walks of life, and they've all done well. So that's a pretty broad spectrum of people. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, I'm always I'm always hesitant about anything that's paid for, and that's because sometimes we don't always value things that we get for free. But right. If someone's getting this paid as part of their employer benefits and they're still going to the doctor and they're still realizing a tremendous savings in their own healthcare costs, that's that's really indicating that this is working, which is really amazing. So we're going to we're going to have to dig deeper on this and get uh, some of this info for you so we can share it with our, our listeners. Yep. But this is Absolutely. just fascinating.
1: To add one more into there, so there's also shared savings programs, if your listeners have heard about that. So it's going to be similar to your traditional insurance model, like Blue Cross or Aetna, but it's not insurance. It's shared savings among the members. Um, They actually, there is a group called Liberty Health Shares that will reimburse their patients, their members, for um, seeing a direct primary care doctor. So it is more of an indemnity policy. They want their members to, like you said, understand the cost of their health care so they still pay for their membership but then they can submit for reimbursement for their membership because the health share plan is recognizing how much savings it is and in improve in and improvement in health care
2: when we talked about this before though you did say you get pushback from the people who went into the more traditional um, pathways mm-hmm. what kind of pushback are you getting what are they saying why did they say this won't work? Why did they say that this was a not a good choice for you or for anybody?
1: So I feel like I'm called an idiot on a pretty regular basis for adopting this model. Um, they just don't think that people are willing to pay for their health care when they pay for health insurance. Um, but I have to strongly disagree. Um, it's just, you have to understand where your health care dollars are going. And once you sit down and look at it on paper, you can, it's really easy to convince pretty much any, um, the benefits they'll have if they switch over to a transparent free market cash-based system. It's just business, just business one one Um, so their biggest pushback is just, they don't believe that will work.
0: So let's talk about those costs. I mean, if I'm joining as a patient in your clinic, mm-hmm. how much am I paying per month or per six months? Um, can I pay for an individual office visit if I just want to come for a sports physical for my kid, you know, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, so some clinics will do an individual fee-for-service clinic or visit. Um, I am not doing that, actually, um, but some will. For my particular clinic, I have it based on age. So it's $25, $45, or $65, or $85 a month, depending on how how old you are. Um, So your age, just guesstimating on looking at you and how old you are, you're probably going to be $65 a month. Um, That's my average fee for most people. Um, but that would include everything. Your strep test is included. Your flu test is included. Um, all your visits are included, right? It's anything I can do in-house, stitches, abscess drainage, all of it's included in that fee. Um, and then I've negotiated cash prices for labs and imaging if we need to get labs and imaging done outside of the clinic.
0: But if I still wanted my insurance to pay for those labs, could that be done or?
1: Sure can. We can build them. Now they're going to cost more, but yes, we can. I can do that. <laughs> and
0: could I pay for the membership fees through my HSA? Is that possible?
1: Oh, that's a fabulous question. I want you to ask me that again in a few months because I might give you a completely different answer. Um, I'm not a lawyer, so please do not consider this as legal advice, Um, but the general answer right now would be no, you can't use your HSA to pay for it, Um, and it's not a very simple answer. Um, I do tell patients they can go and talk to their employer and whoever manages their HSA for their opinion. Um, Some lawyers will say yes, and some lawyers will say no. The reason is even though Um, A physician's visit and the physician's fees are a qualifying medical expense. The IRS has that direct primary care is considered a health plan. So the Affordable Care Act actually specifies that we are not insurance. Most states specify that we are not insurance. But the IRS tax code has us listed as insurance. And you cannot use an HSA for insurance. So... (laughs) You can Uh, use, if we were to do that fee-for-basis, if you were to come for one visit, you can use your HSA for that. That's not a problem. Use your HSA for any labs. I order any imaging. But the membership fee, we're waiting on the IRS to change their tax code. So there's actually um, a bill that's up um, in D.C. on the Senate and the House side, both sitting in committee, that would clarify this. And then those were taking a while, so it's a bipartisan issue. They actually just submitted another bill. um, That's all the bill does. There's nothing added into it. But it would change that tax code. So hopefully um, that Senate Bill 1989 and H.R. 6015 will be taken care of soon. And then my easy answer is yes, you can use your HSA for a membership fee. But
0: but either way, we're talking about less than a cell phone bill here. I mean, it's pretty reasonable.
1: My gym costs more than my membership, which right. I have to tell them that to myself every day, where I'm like, huh, am I undervaluing myself? It's like, nope, <laughs> I, am, I am not undervaluing myself. I'm providing value in my cost.
2: Right. So you don't have to name names, but there are uh, champions of this in federal government and in states governments. There are people who are really interested in this issue.
1: Yep. And the, right. that's why you see places like New Jersey where... Every state employee has the option to go to direct primary care clinic and be reimbursed for it. They're seeing these cost savings.
2: Yeah. What kind, of, besides the tax issue, what kind of issues are you getting at the um, at the legislative uh, level or the policy level? What what blocks are you running into?
1: Um, so some states have the issue, like we were talking about, where they're um, viewed as a health plan or insurance. Um, and so they they struggle because then they have to go underneath the insurance commission for their state. That's a state by state issue though. Um, Texas, again, is not one of those states. Um, and if you're ever concerned or had questions, what your state, what their laws were like, um, you can go to a website called dpcfrontier.com. Um, this is actually a website that's designed by a physician who's also a lawyer, who's one of the big advocates for direct primary care. And so he updates regularly um, what states have what legislation and um, can give you more specifics about your state and what you need to know and be aware about for your state.
2: Okay. And also, uh, when we talked before, you had mentioned something about dispensing of medicines, and that's an issue in some states as well?
1: Uh, yes, I... About that, so that is an issue in five states. Texas is one of those states. Um, so one of the um, values that um, physicians doing direct primary care across the country have found is they dispense medications to their patients at wholesale cost. So they can dispense Lasix, for example, at less than a penny a pill. If you go to Walmart to go buy a 30-day supply of Lasix, that's going to cost $4. So 30 pills is $4 there, versus in their office, it's about $0.30 or less. Um, So we can have great cost savings there with just being able to dispense. There are five states in the US that cannot dispense from a physician's office, and you have to go to a pharmacy. And Texas happens to be one of those states. So we're still fighting for it. Hopefully, one day, we'll be one of the other 45 states.
2: Sure. Let me ask you another logistic question, um, <clears throat> because uh, no matter how much you're involved in preventive medicine, no matter how much you try to be conservative, at some point there are going to be times when you have to move to the next level. Specifically, I'm thinking <laughs> about imaging studies. Okay. Now, one of the things that um, that really is a problem, one of the reasons we hate taking insurance is because we have to do the pre-certification but these people have uh, may have insurance that has to pay for uh, the the um, the studies. Mm-hmm. Logistically, if you don't have a staff, how does that happen? How do you get the MRI that you might need or the ultrasound that you might need? How do you arrange for that?
1: I do it. <laughs> okay. So I have That's I had to do a few of them already, where um, dealing with um, medication prior authorizations or um, getting the MRI approved, a thyroid biopsy approved. Um, so instead of the staff doing it, it's just me doing it. Um, but I have the time to do it also. That's, oh, that's a, true. a piece of it, right? I'm not running around trying to see 30 patients crammed into a day. The average direct primary care clinic that has six to 800 patients in the Rolodex um, sees more like six to eight patients a day. Okay. So it's about 10. It, the number, of, if you think about traditional care that falls through. It's about 10% of your patients you'll need to see on a daily basis.
2: It's probably more efficient, too, because uh, I happen to be lucky. I had a great clinical assistant who could read my mind and actually understood it better than me sometimes. (laughs) But a lot of times you'll send people out, uh, especially in a big practice, to Get this pre-certified, and they don't know the patient, they don't know the circumstances, and that almost always generates a call to the doctor. So you know we've got the same problem, and then it still gets ends up on your desk. In this case, I'm sure that the um, that the certifying people love it that you're the doctor calling because they you can answer all the questions right off the bat.
1: It's, it hasn't been. Um, I've worked in the traditional system. and I know I've sat on hold for an hour at times. Um, So I haven't had that experience yet, but I I know that will come someday.
0: But you also have some scalability built into your practice, right? Once you get to a certain number of patients and a certain workload, I assume you're probably going to look at getting a clinical assistant, maybe somebody Mm -hmm. for the front desk. So this is all just building up towards that.
1: Yes. So one day I do plan to have one staff uh, full time that will just help with general paperwork, answering the phone um, replying to simple patient emails. Um, but I probably won't be hiring that person until I hit, um, closer to hundred patients. Um, there are plenty of practices like mine that are called micro DPC practices that still see those 400, 500 patients and they have no staff. It is just them. So you don't have to have staff to do this. You really don't. And there's many days where, you know, I wish I had staff and there's so many more days where I just love being by myself and I'm perfectly fine not having any staff.
2: Have you had any an issue with referrals to specialists? Uh, any uh, good stories or, or bad stories, pushback or, or welcoming?
1: Um, thus far, I have not had any issues. Um, I'm still building my um, specialist um, network because I want to make sure that whoever I'm referring to, they'll give me back conversation, right? So whether okay. it's texting me or calling me with information, because I really am the patient's advocate in this more than even the traditional setting, right? Um, so... I need to be able to have that relationship with them. Um, thus far, I've only needed to send, um, I've had two patients need to be hospitalized thus far, and one needed a specialist, and it has not been an issue at all. Just texted back and forth.
0: Another thing I'm thinking about, we talked about this in a previous episode, about hospital systems buying up family practices, mm-hmm. and there's huge financial incentive to do that. Um, we have, in fact, we had a pretty good episode with Marty Jameson, who's the executive director of the American Independent Doctors Association, and they do a lot of work nationally to fight for independent physicians and yeah. um, you know, basically be an advocate for, voice for them. But if I'm a hospital system and I'm looking at buying up a big family physician practice, I'm looking at probably locking down those referrals to keep them in-house, so to speak, and also billing for all of the ancillaries and imaging and labs mm-hmm. and everything else. So. Do you see larger hospital systems in this movement as a threat to the DPC yes. model? And yes. how are you guys dealing with that?
1: So um, it, can, well, it can go either way. Um, I personally have not had this problem yet, but I, uh, I know that that's the biggest potential threat out there. It's not the insurance industry. Uh, it is the hospital systems. Um, so there are some hospital systems that actually they back practices like this around the country and are very supportive of it Um, so there's not always pushback but there are some people that are in smaller communities that the hospital has flat out told the doctor that we will not accept your patients we will not allow you to refer to our doctors you cannot use our imaging centers even though we're the only imaging game in town doesn't matter what you pay we're not going to take care of your patients so really? there's potentially some legal pushback to that too, because most hospitals w- receive state money or federal right. dollars. So that's right. illegal, um, but they're still having to deal with that pushback. Um, so we'll see what happens as we expand as in any movements, you're going to have early adopters. You're going to have some pushback. And as the next thousand practices start opening, we're going to have even more pushback. We're going to need to have that mass acceptance from the community and the medical field before we're able to fight that pushback. So now I see that on the horizon the next year or two as it being a real problem. Um, The flip side of let's look at how hospitals make money and you nailed it, right? They don't make money from the primary care doctor. They make money from the specialist, from people being hospitalized, from the imaging and procedures that are done in their system. Right. So if they stepped back and looked at it and went, you know what, we should actually be working with these doctors to make sure that when they go someplace, they're coming to us versus going elsewhere. It could be a harmonious system. But until they see that, we might have some pushback. The other problem that we're going to see is um, it's very transparent. You can see anyone do the math. and They may not know my overhead to the penny, but you can know how much money I'm bringing in or any practice like mine. Right. My numbers are transparent on purpose. Um, so hospital systems also recognize that this is a way for them to earn extra money, which is why you'll see big hospital systems here in Texas. Some of their um, physician, you know, owned I'm using quotations on that owned um, um, clinics are concierge clinics and they've actually started doing direct primary care clinics. Now they are not direct primary care in the definition we talked about. They still take insurance, but the key is they're making that side money on the membership fee. So we'll start seeing and I personally don't think that's gonna work because the reason my practice works and the able reason I can spend more time with my patients and have the low Cost to my patients is I don't have an overhead, right? The more administrative levels, the more bureaucracy you add into a clinic, the more that overhead has to go up because who's paying that salary, right? Right. Exceptionist isn't getting any money for the hospital system. The CEO isn't generating their own income for the hospital system. The only people that make money for the hospital system are the healthcare providers. So if they continue to add those layers above the healthcare providers, it just increases the amount of money the healthcare providers have to bring in a revenue, which increases their costs.
2: Right. The other problem potentially is if a hospital, uh, quote unquote, owns DPC clinics, um, they're gonna keep bringing more and more patients in. So either they have to bend the rules about what a DPC clinic is. In other words, you just have to keep taking more and more patients, in which case it just becomes a subscription service, regular right. traditional one. Or they have to keep adding uh, primary care people, which uh, we talked about is a problem because uh, they just can't find the people to to take those slots. Plus, hiring doctors is an expensive business. So mm-hmm,
1: definitely, and it's yeah. not like this is not the model for every doctor either, right? right? So it takes someone that's willing to be able to take those calls every night. Um, I, I don't get them very often again, but has to be someone that's willing to do that. Someone that wants to have that relationship with their patients. And most people that go into primary care are like that, but not everybody, right? Some people are more students who are the urgent care type clinic. And so they like that seven minute visit where they're in and out. Yeah.
2: Now we had talked uh, about uh, one of the arguments against, that people bring up against the direct primary care, which is that in a time where we need more coverage for primary care patients, uh, you'll have doctors who are setting limits on their practice. And you had a, a really good response to that. I'd like you to share that because I'm sure there are listeners out there who are thinking
1: yep, that and right thing. bringing that up. Yes, there's, that's definitely from um, the medical community, a big pushback I see whenever I give a talk to conferences, well, aren't you making the system? You're ruining the system by creating um, more need for primary care. Well, why do people go into medicine in the first place, right? They want to help people. Um, If you look at the surveys for why physicians feel like they're burnt out, it's not because they're spending too much time with their patients, um, it is because they're doing too many bureaucratic tasks, too many hours at work, or they're not, their income is not high enough. Those are the top three reasons from the Medscape most recent survey for why physicians feel like they're burnt out and why they don't like to do um, a 40 hour uh, or 60 hour a week job. Okay, so if we're able, to, I can take those things away with going into direct primary care, which would incentivize, in theory, um, more physicians going into primary care versus choosing specialties. Right now in America, we have two specialists for every one primary care physician, not mid-level provider physician. So we need to change that, right? We need one specialist for every two primary care. And we don't have a shortage of doctors. We have a shortage of primary care, right? So we just got to work to fix the system to incentivize people. Okay, so we also know that because of all the bureaucracy and the red tapes and the boxes you have to check, we're spending more and more time doing paperwork in order to make sure we're getting appropriate reimbursement. And this is just getting worse every single year, in my opinion. When I started medical school, nobody had EMRs. By the time I was in residency, EMRs were mandated, and everyone was getting them and being slowed down by them. Um, In September of 2016, uh, the most recent study came out showing the amount of time the doctors are spending doing their paperwork. And at that time, they estimated two-thirds of a physician's time is spent doing paperwork in a day. OK, the most conservative study that I've seen, the AFP um, published a study in their family medicine journal that said that 22 percent of a doctor's time was wasted on paperwork. OK, so if you were to take 22 percent of all the primary care physicians time, extrapolate that into man hours and then turn that back into physicians, that's one hundred and sixty five thousand full time physicians that we could also have into the workforce if they weren't spending all that time doing paperwork. And our shortage is only estimated to be 135,000 at the most, and the range is 50 to 135. So just by eliminating the paperwork, and I know we can't get it down to 0%, but just by eliminating the paperwork, you're able to bring more man hours in, and then incentivizing people to want to go into primary care, you bring the people back into primary care, and we actually fix our shortage.
2: Now, you, you've been in practice for a relatively short time. Have you already felt a difference? I mean, you you spent the time in the urgent care. You've been in the traditional system. Have you had patients that you really said, I am so happy that I'm in this system because it allowed me to work with them, allowed me to get them in?
1: Oh, I think every single person that I've seen it makes me feel that way. And if I tear up on you, I'm sorry, we can blame it on the estrogen. Um, but it's, it's been even more than I could possibly have imagined. Um, one of the first, um, families that came into my practice, um, were uninsured hardworking Americans probably fall in that upper lower class. So they don't qualify for any, um, assistance in anything. They did qualify for subsidies under the affordable care act, but, they don't make enough to even afford the premium in the Affordable Care Act. Um, so they couldn't afford insurance for their family of five. Um, their 16-year-old was having um, a medical problem. She had been having some abnormal uterine bleeding for about five weeks. They'd gone to emergency room. They did a workup at the emergency room, sent her home, didn't have follow up set up with her, didn't even do anything to stop the bleeding. So sent her home bleeding and sent her home with abnormal labs. Um, So the mom happened to be um, talking to a coworker and the coworker happened to be a patient of mine and said, oh, why don't you look at Dr. Benson? Her clinic might be right in your price range and she might be able to offer what you need. Um, she called me that day and I stayed late that night to take care of them that night. Um, so they came in at about seven 30 that night, we got the bleeding stopped. Uh, was able to find a portable labs. Um, and this girl would have been just kind of lost in the system. And she was at a critical hemoglobin level where we actually ended up needing to hospitalize her for blood transfusions that should have been done in the first place and weren't done in the first place. The system failed her multiple times. So the system failed her in initial access with just the cost of care. And then it failed her when she actually did try and get care by not giving appropriate care. And so, um, we were luckily able to help them and they're fabulous and, um, grateful, but it made me more grateful that I was able to actually help somebody that our community just left behind. So the safety clinics can't do that.
0: Well, let's talk. I mean, that's just a great story. Let's talk about your trust that you develop with patients, because I think that's something that's lost today is the relationship with the patient. I mean, I know I go to a GP once a year just to get my tetanus or my TB test, you know, and that's about it. I don't know that person, and it's usually someone different every time, but I would imagine that trusting someone and you knowing me as a patient, I'm going to be more willing to talk about certain things. I might even be, you know, willing to... um, undergo other tests or something that would probably just blow off. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that and how that affects people's actual outcomes, because I I have to imagine that knowing that patient better can lead to a better outcome, but what kind of data is on that? And what has your experience been so far?
1: You know, I don't have any hard data on that, just anecdotal stories. And um, I think that's also just common sense too, right? Where, um, like this particular family, I don't want to give too many details about the family, but the fact that um, they were able to have a relationship with me um, and immediately form that trust when I was able to say, look, here's the problems, let me break it down to you. What's going on? Why we need to fix it? How we're going to fix it? If you don't understand that, let's do it again and again and again and just re-explain it until you understand what we're doing, um, which has now put us in a position where, um, when I saw them this week, um, she, the daughter mentioned things to me that had denied previously. So she was willing to open up and had an open up to her mo- mom about some stuff. So now we found new problems that we need to address that this teenager didn't feel comfortable telling anybody about. And so we were able to have a family conversation, uh, that family dialogue, to hopefully have a um, big change in their lives. That's great. And I, I wish I could say more detail, but...
0: Yeah, be, of course. No, that's yeah. a great answer. Now, I noticed on your website you do not have admitting privileges at a local hospital. Is that correct? That's correct. So yeah. why why have you chosen to do that and um, is that something that's going to change or is that just because you just started your practice?
1: Um, it may change. I was talking with the local hospital administrator recently, and so that might change. Um, the reason that I have done that is just where we live uh, here in Dallas. There's just so many hospitals to choose from. I could not have privileges and maintain privileges at every single hospital. On top of that, some hospitals have really big restrictions on who they allow admitting privileges to because of their contracts with their hospitalist groups. Right. Um, so we're just, I'm in the wrong city for that. Um, there's plenty of doctors that do direct primary care across the country that do admit their own on patients and that the, their inpatient medical services from the doctor, not the hospital fee, of course, but the doctor is included in their monthly visit. There's oh, wow. even direct primary care doctors that include their obstetrical services. So they're delivering babies for that $50 a <laughs> month. And then they have cash prices for the ultrasound or even, I know two of them even have ultrasound in their clinic and your ultrasounds and all your prenatal care is all included in that $50 a month.
0: Wow. That answers the question. I was just curious if that was part of the DPC model or just something that you've made a decision on right now and and, and and that answers
1: it on your location, right? And so those two people, they're at different, different areas of the country um, that I'm just thinking off the top of my head. I'm sure there's more, um, but their hospitals are very supportive about it and um, have their cash rates. So they can say, you know, here's going to be what the hospital's going to charge you for our uncomplicated vaginal delivery or our uncomplicated cesarean. Um, of course, things change. Um, and I can give my patients those rates here in Dallas. So they know what they're looking at. And I've worked with OBs here in Dallas, where I know the OBs cash rates um, for what everything's going to cost for the delivery, um, it's just with the political climate here where we live, it's just not—it's just not very feasible. But different parts of the country, different story.
0: So, if one of your patients is admitted, I, I suppose you have maybe relationships with hospitalists and, and other people that could check on your patient for you.
1: Um, Yes and no. So it depends where they go, right? Um, If you've ever worked with the hospitalist group, they're on for a few days, off for a few days, and it varies who's picking up. They may not even pick back up the patient when they come back on, just whoever they get assigned. So having that relationship doesn't even necessarily mean that you're going to be able to help with your patient's care. Um, Instead, what, um, and I have, like we mentioned, had to have two patients hospitalized recently, Um, just being in contact with the hospital and whoever's taking care of them um, can go and do home visits if they're at a facility close enough, um, or hospital visits, not home visits, but actually just go visit them in the hospital and look at their chart. But, um, it's just a, particularly where I live, it's just a little trickier, but when your dogs have a different answer. Yeah.
2: Well, Stacy, at the risk of embarrassing you, you are a remarkable person, um, remarkable doctor, remarkably caring. Um, I think that, uh, that the model is great if you are a remarkable person, <clears throat> if you're willing to give the effort and and get involved in people's lives. And I think it's wonderful because it allows exceptionalism in to come back into medicine. We've been uh, sort of pigeonholed as interchangeable cogs uh, by so many of the people that we um that are administrating us right now that uh, having some a, a place where people who really do care and really are able to do all those things that you talk about, stitch the wound and uh, assess the uterine bleed and all those things, will have a chance to do that. It's, it's really uh, like a, a renaissance of the truly caring full family practice physician. It's just so exciting. Um, do you think, and we talked a little bit about this offline, that there is a role for this in the non-primary care physician? Is there a role for this model in uh, specialty, um, uh, like orthopedics, where there is a fair amount of primary type care in orthopedics? Mm-hmm. Can people set up a practice where at least part of it is modeled the same way your, your practice is modeled?
1: Yes, um, so depending on what the specialty is, it might be a little harder to do a membership based model versus just the cash for service model. But I think in any industry, when you bring transparency in, you bring free market in, you're going to be able to see that improvement in cost. And um, when you're actually able to then improve the cost and as a doctor, for those medical students out there that don't know, it generally takes three to six months to get a reimbursement for a visit. So when you're getting your reimbursement on the day of the visit, you can run your clinic better, too, as a physician, right? You know what your overhead is. You know what your income is. You can make those those hard calls much quicker than waiting three to six months to see what you're actually going to be pulling in. Um, so there are some, there's plenty of specialists. There's lots of endocrinologists are doing this. Um, you'll see cardiologists doing it. Um, rheumatologists, that's another field that you see a lot of dermatologists. Of course, that's a field that's been very cash based for a long time because of the cosmetics part, but even people that just do medical, um, dermatology, there's, um, plenty doing that um doing like sleep medicine or headache medicine um and there's even surgeons that are doing this so there is a group out in oklahoma who's been around for quite a long time um southwest oklahoma surgical center and i'm gonna feel really bad if i have their name wrong um but <laughs> so but they um they do cash pricing for all of their surgeries. And so you can even just go straight onto their website. They are all about transparency. And you can see exactly what they're going to call um, charge for a fee. And that includes your anesthesia, your surgeon fees, your assist fees, um, the hospital fees. Um, everything's included. No, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Surgery Center of Oklahoma. Um, and there's other surgical centers across the country that are starting to model their clinics based on the surgical center, um, that has brought in that price transparency and free market working to negotiate costs down for their supplies and for their imaging and their labs that they get for their patients. That's
0: great. Well, I agree with everything that Keith said. Um, I mean, I could just see your passion just by what you've described this afternoon. I mean, I think it's amazing, but I, I have to imagine you've got a pretty supportive family too, right? Because... In order to get those calls at night and sometimes not be able to go on vacation, um, they do have to be pretty supportive and talk about that a little bit. Then also when you do really have to unplug for a little bit, how do you do that?
1: Um, so they are supportive. Definitely. Um, though. Further along we get into this, I feel like they're becoming more supportive. Um, like, my husband even went with me to that home visit last night and stayed out in the car while I went in to check on the kid. Um, so the more he's seeing the benefits, the more amazed he is by it, too, because, again, it was hard for him to wrap his brain around this, this dream that I was trying to propose. And even this weekend he came and he ran through a clinic visit with me to sim, uh, simulate one to make sure that it was flowing, um, in a good way for the patient, not just for me. So, and he couldn't even believe that day that that's really how your clinic visit goes. Really? I was like, yep, yeah, it's that simple. I just wheel in my vitals card and you just sit in this comfy chair and he's like, are you, are you sure that's how your clinic runs? And it's like, yes, sweetie, we've been open six weeks. That's how it works. <laughs> but thanks for paying attention. Um, So they have been supportive. And, and he also understands that I was at a point where, um, and we've been together for a long time. We've been together since pre-medical school. So he saw this evolve over the past, um, over a decade, but, um, that I couldn't be a doctor. This was, this was the last straw. Um, I was just not comfortable, um, morally providing the type of care that we were providing, um, in the traditional world, um, I just, I couldn't do it. So um, he knew that this is what I needed to do too. So okay.
2: So uh, if I'm a medical student or I'm a resident in a uh, internal medicine or family practice uh, mm-hmm. setting, and I am really interested in being, becoming a direct primary care physician, what resources are there? Where would you send me right now?
1: I would say send me an email. And I will, Dr. Benson at ParadigmFamilyHealth.com, and I will help connect you with whoever is near you. You can go shadow with them. Um, can, there's a Facebook group um, that I can help get you into, and you can just start Reading through it, and there's tons of great information there. Um, that dpcfrontier.com, that's also a great website with amazing resources. Um, just Google direct primary care. There's a direct primary care journal that's out there right now. Um, there is a website called um, I am direct care, and then another one that I want direct care. Those are both websites that are um, geared towards just explaining what the model is, and you can self-submit your info to it so that patients can find you from there. Um, both um, AAFP and ACOFP um, do have um, some resource information available on their websites about um, direct primary care that you can also access. And then um, I'm not sure about the um IM organizations, just because I'm not a personal <laughs> member of those. Uh, but I, would, I wouldn't I would be surprised if they didn't have that stuff, too.
0: Well, we'll definitely get all that up in the show notes again. Um, I'm curious, too, because you do have a lot of control over your practice right now, because it's you. Mm-hmm. Would you ever consider having a partner, or I'm would you rather... Percent. What's
1: that? I'm a percent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So my ultimate vision is to create more of a a wellness center one day. Um, I don't. I don't want it to become this massive organization where we don't have the flexibility to change stuff. I don't want that administration there, like we've talked about. I want it to be as lean of a staff possible um but i would love to bring another physician someday with different passions so someone that's for example really into sports medicine or doing osteopathic techniques or a functional medicine doctor um so even though we all do primary care we can lean on each other for those those other those other hobbies in medicine that we have (laughs) bringing in a retired orthopedic um pediatrician would be great too you know
0: (laughs) (laughs) exactly well, we're coming close to the end of the hour here, Stacey. We want to obviously be respectful of your time. Um, you good with maybe two or three more quick questions and wrap oh, it up?
1: As many as you want. for fine.
0: Great. All right, so I heard you say that you and your husband went through a run-through, and I like the idea of that. Um, give us an idea, Stacy, of things that you do to improve your performance as a clinician and to measure it. How do you know how well you're doing with your patients? How do you get feedback? Give us an idea of some of your, your daily routines and and processes in place so far. I know we're six weeks into this, but what you've done so far.
1: So there's, there's not a really great, Um, but something I've told all of my patients and I hope they take me up on it. If any of them happen to be listening, is feedback from my patients. If there's something that we're not offering or something that we're not doing that they, that they would like, whether it's um, changing the patient portal, I, they can see all their visit summaries from the patient portal. um, Whether it's They don't like the way we're scheduling appointments or they want to change the hours at the clinic that works better for them i would love to model my clinic to their needs as a patient population not just one individual but as a group um if we're not offering a service that they want for them to tell me so they all get that spiel when they first come in that if there's something that you guys are looking for that we're not offering let us know may not offer it but we can see what we can do um from the flip side, when I was looking at my electronic medical records and which one I was going to choose, um, I wanted to make sure I had one that I could pull patient data from. So I could pull my diabetics and make sure they had gotten their A1C, they'd gotten their annual labs and that they were doing well and they were controlled. Pull all of my blood pressure, uh, my hypertension patients and see what their blood pressures were running and make sure that everyone's submitting their logs. Anyone on an antidepressant, have they done their um, PHQ screen recently, you know, so my EMR allows for that searchability. Um, to, to the traditional world, they do still have to do those things in order to meet their um, quality markers. And then in order to be certified, some of the um, certifying boards also require you to be able to pull information and, and do that too. So um, we haven't done any of that yet since we're so fresh in. I know all of my patients by heart and who's done, right. that and hasn't done one has done one. But I know I have the technology there for it.
0: Just take us through, again, your typical day. Are there things that you do, um, and we, we've asked this question to our guests before, so some people will do a daily meditation every morning, or they work out every morning, or they work out in the evening. Are there things that you structure into your day, even structured breaks, that help you stay focused and keep high energy and enjoy your job?
1: No. <laughs> That's okay. I have a two-year-old, so um, days vary a lot for what's going to happen day to day, right? Um, so, for example, last night she didn't sleep. So when we woke up this morning, um, I looked at the schedule and um, checked my message system to see if any patients had sent messages overnight or needed new appointments, and no one had, and she was still asleep. So I went back to bed, got an extra hour in for myself. Um, so it just it varies day to day my, with my daughter and having to hold mom at the same time.
0: Yeah, I've got one coming, so I guess I'm going to learn that pretty soon, so. <laughs> yeah,
1: but I'm fortunate enough to have that luxury to be able to do that. So sure. in my previous job where, when she was born, I did not have that luxury. I just had to go work my 14-hour shift and hope I there was enough coffee to through the day, so.
0: And we're going to try a new question here today. This is something we've okay. been talking about. Tell us about, if you can, a patient who made a huge impact on you. This could have been all the way through training, or just change your perspective on things.
1: Um. Let's see. Um. Probably myself. Um. That's why I do what I do. Um. So I was um, to go backwards even further. So my um, parents owned their own business growing up, and so they were, you know, your lower middle class family that was both working. You know, very hard hours. I'm the oldest of five kids. Um, I can remember many nights where I didn't see my mom or my dad because they were just at the office so late. And by the time I got everyone in bed, they were hadn't even gotten home yet. Um, so they struggled to be able to provide health insurance for everybody. Um, we went on and off food stamps on and off the chip system. So that's our state insurance system for kids. Um, And uh, it wasn't until, it wasn't a a problem, they did have to struggle to go see the doctor financially every once in a while, but when I was um, 13 years old, I had a seizure, and I was diagnosed with juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, and um, I no longer qualified for insurance because I had a pre-existing condition, so um, I could no longer be insured. So while their business became more successful, they could afford insurance for everyone else, I could not be insured um so my parents had to pay cash for me for every time we went to the doctor and if we were in a rough month for them and they're practicing their business um i remember my mom having to push off me getting strep throat treatment and i remember coughing up blood at the age of 16 because we couldn't afford to go mm. to the doctor um which i understand it i don't blame my parents for anything that they did if they happen to listen to this but it also made me realize that there needs to be other options out there that you know, there, I was from a small town. There wasn't really great community resources and there wasn't really anyone you could go to unless you drove into the big city and paid their cash rates. Um, on top of it, when we did go to the doctor, um, I would have a five minute visit with that doctor. And I was old enough to know that it was a in and out five minute visit. And my mom had to pay a hundred dollars for that five minutes. Um, so I didn't, even though doctors are important, I didn't feel we were that important to be making $2,000 an hour. So, um, I decided to do primary care, um, went to medical school with the whole thought of what well, we talked about, creating some sort of a cash-based clinic. So it just, it took away the financial barrier. It didn't have to just be for low-income people or people that couldn't afford insurance, but I just wanted that barrier to be gone and for me to spend time with my patients. Um, so I even struggled with insurance in medical school because that was prior to the Affordable Care Act and pre-existing conditions going away. Um, so um, I hope I don't get in trouble anywhere. But I, I couldn't even write that I had um, a, a previous medical history or I wouldn't have been able to get insurance in medical school. And I couldn't have gone to medical school if I didn't have health insurance. So it was a, it, it was a big flaw in the system. So um, while people have their problems with um, the Affordable Care Act and with um, appealing it, replacing it, keeping it, whatever you want, um, just the fact that we – we weren't allowing care to a big group of our um, population because of existing conditions was a problem for me. And so by having this type of a model, it gets rid of that no matter what happens up on the Hill in the next few months, it's not going to change how I provide care to anybody.
0: Wow. I think that's a wonderful note to end on. Um, Stacy, thank you so much for sharing your story. And then thank you so much for sharing your practice and and what you're up to right now. Um, I know I enjoyed it. Keith, um, that this is yeah. a great discussion. It was, we-
2: and, and we certainly are going to be checking in with you and, That's and if we'll great. take you up on that, we'd love to see how things are in six months and a year. And, and, uh, also find out how the, the movement, if you will, is building. Cause I think it's a really important movement. I think it's, it's so critical that people catch on to this. Uh, it's great for the patients. It's really great for the doctors and I applaud this and I applaud you for doing it. So
1: well, thank you, and thanks for having me on. It's been a, it's been a fun roller coaster with you guys today.
0: Well, thank you, Stacey. We really enjoyed it. And Dr. Stacey Benson, thank you again for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your time. Again, this is Colin Miller here with Keith Mankin. You're on Pure Spectrum. We'll see you here next time. Take care.
2: Thanks for joining us on Pure Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at PureSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com.